0: Welcome to the Stories or Soul Food podcast, with your hosts, Brian Cole, and bestselling author, N.D. Wilson. This audio is brought to you by Cannonball Books and Great Homeschool Conventions. Welcome. We promised the episode of villains. Villains and villainy. Yeah, absolutely. I tried to think about the best way to to head into this episode. I wasn't sure if it was to read a bunch of quotes about villains that would make you mad. (laughs) Because they're all over Goodreads. There's lots of bad... People who just don't understand what a villain is for. Okay. They're people who think that they've recognized their own villainy in their soul, and I've tried to turn that into what every character must be. But I actually thought we should jump off last week and talk about how do you approach a villain or where do villains come from in your own writing? Cuz I think the main character may make a little more sense, but where do the bad guys come from? You've got some very scary ones. Some yeah. pretty pr- pretty vividly scary ones. Yeah. nemione Um I even moving into, you know, I don't know, we don't we don't want to do too many sources.
1: El has spooked a number of small children yeah he's but it's just the el the vulture from the outlaws of time series but he's mm-hmm. he it's his pocket watches mm-hmm. that float out of his vest yeah that appear they appear to be chained to his heart but yeah. hidden behind that vest that kind of gets people
0: grendel's mom yeah from, uh yep i can't remember what her name is but yeah, she there's a Grendel's mother is her name.
1: Oh, okay. Then, <laughs> oh, if we're talking about Beowulf, the uh, does
0: she have a name? No, no. I'm oh, in, talking about uh, Boys of Blur? I'm in Boys of Blur. Grendel's no, that's Blur.
1: a terrible thing to ask me right now because I actually have no idea if I named her. <laughs>
0: right now, that's
1: Sorry to someone who just read Boys of Blur. If you could email us and let me know, uh, otherwise, I'm moving and between houses, so I'd have to go dig a copy out of my box and be like, did I give her a name?
0: I know I had written a bunch of name ideas down in one of my notebooks maybe you went with the poet and decided that she does not i think i
1: did i think i kept her nameless but somebody correct me if i'm wrong on that a recent reader of boys of blur uh or not recent reader but somebody with a better memory than i have uh this is actually as a side note it's one of the funniest things about being an author is i remember books a lot more clearly that i read than the books i wrote and that was unexpected Okay, I'm yeah. just, just going to say that was really not how I was thinking my brain would work, and because so you, you've
0: agonized over every detail. Yeah, of so these I have books. total, I have
1: almost total recall of stories that I've read that other people wrote, and I have a huge, massive fog around scenes and order and sequences around things I wrote because I've written so many iterations, and so from outlining it to sketching it out to first draft to second draft, third draft, fourth draft, sometimes fifth draft. Uh, sometimes reconceiving it as a different structure, Ashdown Burials, five books, you know, three books, four books, what is it? Three no. books and a newspaper now. Yeah, three books, three books and a newspaper serial. But it also was five books, and it became three books. And okay, I'm going to put stuff in a prequel that would have ended up in book four, and pulling stuff from book four and five into book three, and you know, like lots okay. of restructuring. And so then afterwards. <laughs> you, you're saying I I did that right? Like I,
0: you're trying to reconstruct the eggs from the cake. Yeah, after the cake. Yeah, been and made. also when you've baked that cake several times now, and then so somebody
1: shows up and you've cleaned your house and set the table and hidden all the trash under the sink, and you sit them down to here. I have a piece of cake, and they say, "What's in it?" And you're like, "Well, which one is this?" <laughs>
0: like right, I've right. done it. Uh, so that, that anyway, that's a distraction from villains. But well, is that what it is, or is it that stories are actually? Reading them is still better soul food than writing them. Yeah.
1: Well, yes. So, reading them is uh, ingestion versus, you know, consuming lemonade versus being squeezed like a lemon. (laughs) So,
0: (laughs) there, put that one on. There's, (laughs) yeah, there's,
1: there's times where I definitely writing is like being wrung out, you know, being crushed and pressed and all that kind of thing. But as far as, as far as the villains go and even the story goes, I know at the outset of, everything that i have to get the villains right and Mm. Mm. they are i mean if you could be more than essential beyond essential to a story is the villainy the darkness and whether it's personified in a singular villain or if it's spread you know if it's if it's spread out through you know a, a broad emotional mob hysterical mentality or anything like that something dystopian like what's the villainy
0: Okay, so you can have a story without a specific person who's a villain. Yeah. But you cannot have a story without villainy. Correct. And I
1: think that it's good to have that villainy have a, uh, a totem, a locus point mm-hmm. that the reader can focus their hatred on and feel gratification, like resolution when it's dealt with. It's it's more difficult to deal with you know, widespread hysteria than it is to deal with. Somebody behind widespread hysteria, like you can you can create that that villain for purposes of the story. But a few things that are key in constructing villains: one is, I would say, pettiness, and part of that pettiness is realism. So you you have to approach them like like real people. These are real people, and I don't care if it has you know he has horns and wings. He's got to be a real person in terms of motivation can't be mustache twirly. So a cardboard villain is just as bad a flaw. Yeah, a placeholder villain. You don't want a placeholder villain any more than you want a placeholder hero.
0: And and I think that must be because there's a sense in which the villain is real. Like like it's a real life thing that you have to get familiar with with recognizing either in yourself. And so if you fake that, that seems like it's going to be really bad for your real life. Yes.
1: We really probably should have started with my biggest pet peeve. Of villains currently, which is villains who are misunderstood. Pet peeve number one. Oh, oh, in act three, guess what, guys? He's just misunderstood. He made some bad
0: life choices, yes, but ultimately misunderstood. So we've done that with Maleficent. We've done yes. that with the Joker. We've done that with. Oh, with every single. A Little Red Riding Hood's Fox. Yeah. I was in every uh, single wolf. children's
1: movie now. You get into the you okay. know, Lego movies, like the last Lego movie. Yeah. What in How much they smoked first? I don't know. But we've got this alien invasion. We've got this really, oh, really yeah. potent Lego alien invading, blowing stuff up. And it turns out, oh, she's missing. Yep. But in her misunderstanding, she lashed out and blew stuff up and it's a, it's the perfect weird i mean it's just it's just super super weird where right now especially we have so much pent up societal guilt and cultural guilt that you know we we would be terrified horrified of bad things we might do in foreign countries but in that particular story it's like pearl harbor happened and the resolution is oh it was a misunderstanding <laughs> it's like no it was not yeah. It was not a misunderstanding. You bombed us like this. Is, right, right. It's more than a misunderstanding. So that was that one drove me nuts. But the Pixar has gone that direction. It's just if a movie is for children right now, animated especially, almost guaranteed it'll be a misunderstood villain, not an not someone actually evil, not somebody dealing with darkness. Now there are exceptions, but anything new is partaking of that orthodoxy right now. There
0: is no such. Thing as evil. Okay, I think this there is are coming misunderstandings. I came prepped with this. I would know. It, I knew it would ignore you, but it was. Good. It's Ursula Kayla Gwyn. Yeah, talking about story and saying anything that reduces story into an us versus them right. removes all the ethical complexity out mm-hmm. of the story. So sad. Yeah, and 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 kind of reduces it into a, a binary on-off switch. Yep. Um, I'm happy to put it on a dimmer.
1: That's fine. Yeah. <laughs> 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 but, it, but it remains binary. <laughs> like there are two poles. Yeah. And so I I agree with her and I agree with a lot of authors when they say like, well, it's never cut and dried. You don't want, you know, white hats, black hats. Sure. Absolutely. Everyone's got darkness. Your protagonist has darkness. Your protagonist has brokenness. It has to be there. But you don't go over to the villain and say, what makes this character the villain is that I have put them in this designated box not that there's anything different about them yeah you know like they're just they are designated they've been designated as villain
0: it's complete postmodernism you yeah. can come back and reorient the entire story around that person without changing anything because there's right. no objective pull right so which weirdly and i think this is just one of those
1: ironies and lovely folds that god puts into the world is that when people do that when they say we can't have this us versus them binary thing we have to have it Split where designated protagonist, designated antagonist. But I could flip this, mm-hmm. like I could, I could just flip it around, yeah, uh, and it would be fine. I would have the ability to do that. The weird thing about that is that creates the ultimate us versus them paradox because us versus them becomes the only ultimate guideline in the conflict. So, oh wow, there okay. is there is no other standard by which that conflict is measured or comes into existence apart from us versus them. So, if you say there is good and there is evil and he is on the evil side and th- and she is on the good side, here's my Susie Q protagonist and she is on the side of goodness and light. That's why she's the protagonist. Mm-hmm. And here is Harold B. Jones, my antagonist, and he is malicious and tortures frogs. You know, like it's... Right. He's doing dark deeds and he wants to do darker deeds and he's, you know... He's going to take over the world. He's the antagonist because he is evil.
0: <laughs> fruits of the yes. devil. Yes, so evil, it's pronounced <laughs> evil
1: as in Fruits of the devil. <laughs> oh, yeah. If you watch that movie, So I Married next murder murderer watch with filters with your children. Right. It needs filters, but filters are available, by the way. So if you divide your antagonist and protagonist because they are on opposite objective sides of reality then it's actually not us versus them because what can happen there is that they can become friends because one can be won over or they can be corrupted because yeah. you can be- You can
0: repent or you can, you can be yeah, corrupted. and you can yeah. go to the
1: dark side. Yeah. You know, it, repentance is possible and corruption is possible. But if the only thing that drives that fight is the fact that they're two different people. like mm, And they've been designated. Yeah, then wrestling. they will,
0: that's it. Us versus them is the only possible differentiation. So that between, school removes the whole concept of someone even being a villain at all. It's just two different yeah, teams. Yep. It's like a military exercise with the op four. Yeah,
1: exactly. Team, yeah, green team, blue team. Right. You know, nobody's playing Russia. There's, you know, it's a scrimmage on a athletic team as opposed to somebody being scout offense or scout defense. So, right. you know, you'll have a football practice where you're, you know, Second string defense is has been trained to imitate the defense of the team you're about to see. And so you're, you know, you're scout D or something like that.
0: Yeah. You're not even, you're not even there. And that's why it feels so arbitrary and it's so annoying because at the it end is. of Lego <laughs> movie. Because it was.
1: Because it was so arbitrary. It was entirely arbitrary. Yeah. It was. So what was the big fight? It's like, well, we were different, uh, to quote Flight of the Concords, we were different to them. <laughs> so um, we're different. So we fought. And that's the whole conflict because we're different, which is weird because this is, this whole thing's been espoused and just dogmatically (laughs) preached throughout all of culture by those people who are strangely relativists. So they're relativists and they, they're the, you know, they're the ones doing the wokey pokey. They're the ones who are fully in on inclusion. And yet differences are what create just like, Two people who are different that creates antagonist protagonist, and you can in flip this it. context, yeah, yeah. And just designate in storytelling, right? So, and you see that you actually do see that right now, where for if we this this could be too much sociological discussion, <laughs> just wild speculation, but you you go back and you see through Jim Crow and after the Civil War all the scapegoating that happened uh, with the black population, and the scapegoating happened on both sides. And there's this weird white fight that happened. It was white people fighting for power over other white people. And the North, you know, it was all a white fight. And the North was basically saying, we had to do this because of the black population. We are the saviors, we're the rescuers. And the South was saying, man, we hate you because you're why we got burned by Sherman. So the black population got like blamed for like hundreds of thousands of deaths on both sides. Like the great sacrifice that was laid down by the Yankees and the bane of the Confederacy. But either way, this, you know, they just got used as like a rope and a tug of war. But you have these antagonists, protagonists, antagonists. And we have always had authors who want to switch sides and say, I'm going to write the story about the good German or I'm going to write the story from the perspective of this, you know, this one Confederate kid who was not bad. Like, He was just confused. He was caught up. We've always done that. And that kind of perspectival shifting can bring wisdom. It can bring insight. But ultimately, it has to be more than, like, it has to be resolved
0: by more than education. Right. The alleviation of confusion is not the resolution. It only happens in, with, if there's a compass in the situation. You can't just have, all of a sudden, we jumped onto this German kid Nazi ship and there's no concept of good or bad it has yeah. to it has to be in that broader yep and we are in a place where a christian could look at different parts of history
1: different aspects of history or fiction and say here is evil here is good and then there's people who it is binary two poles and here are people who are caught up in between on a spectrum in between but if it is arbitrary if it is this misunderstanding then a white person you know right now especially You know, some cis male whitey Mm. is like immediately receives certain designation and it creates kind of an anti-relativistic very quickly. And it it becomes just ethnic hatred, camp hatreds, tribal hatreds really, really quickly, which is funny from the woke relativistic side. It then went around the world, you know, went around the world like Chesterton says and ultimately came back to the same place. It's come back to the same place where all that you're left with is petty hatreds and grievances and misunderstandings that you
0: then inflate into giant conflicts. So let's take that back to, okay, the o- other universe, the one that is not Nate's pet peeve about villains. <laughs> yeah. So as Christians, we're defined by a fundamental enmity, right? Yep. Yeah. And, and it's the enmity of seed of the woman, seed yeah, of the serpent. A, there's a blood feud. Yeah. Right. And, but that, that has a list of designators. As a Christian, you behave this way, and if you behave the other way, you're on the snake's team. Yep. And so that's where we make our discussions about if if we're looking at ethnicity or or those you know sins in those ways they have right. a they have a compass. They're not designations. Yep. It's a, it's a whether you're close to God or far from Him, right? Yes. So if you if we look at uh, Narnia, you look at Lion,
1: the Witch and the Wardrobe, and you think about Edmund, right? Yeah, oh, that's good. So, Edmund's Team White Witch. Edmund is a sub villain. Like, Edmund plays a major role in villainy, and Edmund crosses the, that line twice. You know, he starts on one side, but already adrift. He crosses that line completely and has a moment of choice, a clear moment of choice, when he decides active protagonist, active antagonist. So we tend to understand that we don't like stories that feel arbitrary where stuff just happens to kids, just happens to protagonists and they're, they're flotsam on the river. You know, just they make no choices. They just get swept away. But that's true of antagonists as, as well. Antagonists have to make choices and they have to make choices without confusion. Like they decide to yeah,
0: go okay. particular directions. Because if Edmund had really been tricked into... Yeah. Going to the witch's castle. Yeah. No, you could you could have a story in which a kid is tricked,
1: right? But when they try to, we try to resolve that story. What did you resolve it with? You resolved it not with character growth, but with information. So they did not, There's there's no journey. There's no edification of that fictional character and therefore no vicarious edification of the reader. It's just, oops, <laughs> like... I, re- I clicked on the wrong Google link, and I got this wrong. And so I read the next search page, and now I got it right. Okay. All
0: right, it- there's
1: no culpability. There's no choice. There's no active antagonist. So Edmund makes a choice, and we see him make that choice when he decides to lie about Lucy. When Lu- like He knows the truth. Lucy says, we made it to Narnia. And he throws her under the bus. And he says, oh, we were pretending. No. Why does that work in the story? How is that believable at all? That is such irrational behavior and yet totally human. We see it all around us all the time. You mean irrational to lie? Like well, I that? mean, it's such irrational behavior to just show up to your older sister and brother and say, nope, we weren't there. No, she, yeah.
0: Like <laughs> The most exciting thing well, of yeah, your life. It's like yeah, the coolest yeah.
1: thing ever. And nope, she's a liar. <laughs> like, what, what's your end game? That's I mean, right. I never questioned this, it because it made so much sense. No, it resonates. That's the canker sore of bitterness, envy, resentment. That's that that rift in a relationship. That's that um, jealousy, ultimately, that causes that kind of decision. So Edmund makes a choice and he makes a choice not based on deception. So Eve makes a choice. If We're going back to the the big story. Eve makes a choice and she is deceived. Like We're told she was deceived. She should have known better that That's also obviously clear. She should not have been deceived. It was culpable deception. It wasn't like she really got bamboozled. She yeah. got manipulated. Mm-hmm. Adam shows up, and Adam is not deceived. Like he makes a clean choice to just like walk away from God, to disobey God. And he is not he is a villain. that is villainy in that moment. The villain, obviously is the deceiver there who put his bride under a death curse. You know already when Adam comes to that choice, but most people don't actually process that. They just think, "Well, isn't that at least kind of sentimental?" <laughs> Adam just loved Eve that much that he he decided to go down with her, and it's that's not how it plays out. And in a character choice, he is looking at, "Oh, he's still perfect." That's the weird part here. Now, if you read the story, Adam is not really read it like a story. Adam is not yet fallen, and his bride's under a death curse. So there's a dragon and his bride is under a death curse and he's presented with a choice. What's he going to do? People look around like this is what you want to do with all your protagonists. You want to put them in impossible decisions. You want to give them a fork in the road where it's awful that way and it's awful the other way. And you know, and the reader genuinely sits there confused because if we sit there and we sit down a bunch of a bunch of young readers or even adult readers and say, you might know in principle that Adam should have obeyed God, What would that look like? They have no idea. Like, well, it's been fun, Eve. Like, peace. (laughs) Like, just, you're dead. Bummer. But God will give me another one, I'm sure. Like, if if Adam doesn't eat the fruit, what does that choice look like for him to not eat that fruit? Like, he just says, peace out to his bride as she dies, as she's under that curse. You know, it's like, and obviously eating the fruit, we know what that looks like. It looks like the catastrophe we went through and the whole narrative. So there's the horns of the dilemma, right? He's on these horns.
0: Yeah, lose Eve or yeah. join Eve, and yeah. they're both terrible options. Yeah, one is hell and yeah. and total set losing God.
1: So lose God or lose your bride ultimately, right?
0: And fail at your mission because yep. she was integral
1: to his yep, mission. Yeah, exactly. Right? So left door, right door, and then a good
0: protagonist finds the third way. So but what would that what would that third way be for Adam? Um, I mean, this, obviously we're
1: yeah <laughs> speculating, so, but it seems no. Pretty I don't clear think we, we are. I don't think we are
0: speculating. No, we're not. Because okay. no, we're
1: not. I think we can say authoritatively <laughs> what the third way was. Okay, all right. Uh, because God told the story again later, uh, as promised, and the second Adam came and was given a bride under a death curse and a serpent to defeat. Okay, and he and he said, "Take me instead." There you go. Wow. So that tells us what the first Adam should have done in the garden. He should have. First off, I would say, smash the serpent's head, then go to God with his bride and say, take me instead. Yeah. And he would have been a perfect sacrifice. Yeah. So anyway, the that's that third way. And we don't see that door open until the second Adam comes and passes the same test. Right. You know, is presented with the same dilemma. And beca- and is and fulfills it. But anyway, that we're far afield, but not really.
0: <laughs> yeah, I don't think so. Because if we retell the story from Satan's point of view. Yeah. You know, we do functionally what people try to do. And it's what people try to do with Milton and Paradise Lost. Oh, yeah.
1: Yes, absolutely. Overtly. Like it's Satan's point of view, like taking Satan as the character. Uh they do it with Beowulf and uh John Gardner did it with Grendel, you know, writing the story of Beowulf from Grendel's perspective. Oh yeah. And
0: I think I forgot about that one. and it's everybody I, it's blocked, like, well, I blocked that one out. Let's
1: move the camera. let's let's be relativists and you know go look at it from the poor misunderstood monsters perspective. All right Now it, that can be interesting and it can, like I said, it can communicate wisdom. so like, I think actually the film "JoJo Rabbit" is absolutely brilliant. Oh I, okay. I like it a lot. It's one of my favorite films in recent history, and a little totally propagandized Nazi kid. Like it's it's brilliant. It's, it's
0: Hitler Youth and everything.
1: Yeah, he's, imagine. he's all in. He's found and he finds the worst nightmare of his life. Finds a Jew in his walls. <laughs> you know, it's like yeah. his then,
0: parents are breaking or his mom is <laughs> breaking the lawns and smuggling.
1: Yeah, it's so there's a Jew in his walls,
0: and this is the worst because he is little boy. You know, Hitler, and he has his sure. uh, imaginary friends, Hitler, right? Yep. Okay. So yeah. I mean, it's
1: it is a brilliant, brilliant film. It's the kind of film that if you pitched it in a room, I don't know how anybody says yes to making that movie and yet uh taika waititi wrote and directed adapted based off of a pretty terrible book actually but brilliant adaptation brilliant film and it's so you're you're going through a story from the perspective of a little nazi child you know and it's which is bad (laughs) right (laughs) But but it is not a question of who's to say what's right or wrong Yeah. You know, it's like the the story's perspective is strongly objective, not subjective. It is not relativistic at all. He's on the side of evil and he has to discover that and leave it. Like he reaches a place where he will he will be culpable. Right. So he his intelligence and his awareness rises to a level of culpability. And, you know, at that moment he's got to go left, he's got to go right. He's one way or the other. I really like the film, as I said. But um when we're coming to villains, there's a couple of things I think matter a lot. One is, uh, and my father was talking about this in a sermon recently and then on his blog, it's important to remember that the villains in scripture, whether it's the devil <laughs> or the Sanhedrin right? You know, or Pilate or Saul, I've been yeah. reading, reading some first yeah. Samuel. And so people who are, who find themselves standing in that place where they are the villains, they break a lot of different ways. You have Pilate, who washes his hands. He says, "Peace out to Eve." Yeah, yeah. He washes his hands and said, "This, this is not on me." I'm saying this is not on me, as if I have the authority to say whether something's on me or not. You yeah. know. So this one's not on me. Uh, we have the Sanhedrin where they. Uh, Bribe Judas and then Judas throws the 30 pieces of silver back and they say, man, which account does this go into? This is an accounting nightmare. This is blood money. We can't... This is an accounting nightmare at this point. How do we... And they paid the money. Yeah. So they paid the 30 pieces of silver. Judas throws it back at them and hangs himself and they feel guilty. Now, weirdly, what do they feel guilty for? They feel guilty that the field has been made unclean where Judas hung himself. Like, what? (laughs) It's yeah. it's so bizarre. And then of course they used the 30 pieces of silver to buy that field and then convert it into a cemetery. And it's still a cemetery today. And if you get a chance, go stand in that field in Jerusalem. And it is, an, it is an amazing sensation to stand there surrounded by tombs. This field became a graveyard purchased to that end with those 30 pieces of silver. By the villains. By the villains. And then I think the high priest buried his father-in-law there and oh. the tomb's still there, so it's like, it's, it's, a weird, it's a weird place. Anyway, we're still way far afield, well, but the, yeah, petty, the pettiness, yeah. like, the Sanhedrin, you have an argument between guys over how to fill out the spreadsheet with the 30 pieces of silver. That's so human. It's just like Edmund. Like, we're refusing to see the big thing. We're like, la, la, la about the big thing, and we're stressing out about the unrighteousness of mis- misappropriating these 30 pieces of silver. Pilot yeah. Has his maker has truth in front of him, and he shrugs it off at his pomo moment of what is truth?
0: I have a I have a a, f- a friend who, when I knew he was really gone, was the moment when he told me the the line he identified most with in the New Testament was "No, what Pilate's is line. truth?" And, and and as you pointed out, truth is in front of him. Yep, truth incarnate is standing there, and Pilate says,
1: "What is it really?" I'll be over here washing my hands. Uh, you mob, do whatever you want, so you have guys who are that way, so as you as you pick your villains i tend to I tend to always go to history and scripture to find the right psychology to make a villain work then the real the real baddies, right? like the ones who are the most melodramatic, which turns out are great for um children's fiction, strong flavors, right? so the strongest flavors, like the outright villains are people with messiah complexes almost always. And so you roll you roll through history and you roll through scripture and there's people who insist that they are the forces of righteousness. The Sanhedrin, the Pharisees who plotted to kill Jesus, did so because they loved righteousness so much. They had the wrong standard. You know, they had the wrong tablets. The wrong law that they, you know, created in their hearts that had overruled the law of Moses. That had overruled the law and the prophets and they were so offended by this guy who could overrule death like they're so offended by this this man that they must murder him and when they plotted to murder him 100 guaranteed they felt righteous they felt absolutely righteous doing it and you have to see that in your villains they like you're you're gonna very rarely find Somebody who knows something's straight up evil and they're doing it because it's evil. Those people belong in police procedurals and they're usually serial killers. You know, it's like, that's what you're dealing with. People who just say, this is evil and I'm doing it because it's evil. Most of the time, it's Margaret Sanger. Most of the time, it's uh, Harry Laughlin who is drafting, you know, a school teacher from Pennsylvania, drafting sterilization and eugenics legislation for the U.S. You know, okay, and I reckon, then I and recognize then that, stuff. that name. Yeah. And then he he turns out to have been the father of my villain in the Ashton Burial series. So if he was a friend of Sangers and I have his his son becomes the Dr. Phoenix Evil, who is convinced that he's he's doing this all for the greater good, this is for the best. Like what he's doing is for the best. And he doesn't care about any of those stupid rules. You yeah. know, those stupid rules, those stupid morals from you know, the Christians. He knows what's best. So then, uh, then I, on a spectrum, I bounce down to monsters, right? So Boys of Blur, I've got the Grand based on Grendel, and one of the the best things about Grendel is that even though he's a monster in even in the original book, sitting out in the shadows, and we think this is not a super developed character, <laughs> you know, he's just monstrous. In the original poem, he's fueled by envy. He yeah. looks into the feast, sees the joy. The laughter, the food, the feasting, and he hates it. And he envies it and he wants to dest- destroy it, which is a really basic and understandable
0: human emotion of they have things I don't have. So I think I- the poet, like he's just, he's introduced as the child of Cain, right? Yep. So he's the first brother hater. Yeah. Yeah. So Grendel's that, yeah. that same envy. And so all the way down the line, he is
1: full of envy and fueled by envy looking a man and he wants to, you know, he wants to be a nightmare. He wants to terrorize them. He wants to smash their joy. So the Boys of Blur, when I was echoing that poem, when these monsters show up, people just start to be influenced. The Sort of the aura they give off is envy. Like It consumes people who are around them. People who start to give in to them are consumed with envy because that's what they are. They envy the living. They envy human society. They envy fellowship and relationships. And so they want to destroy all of it. And so I, I just steal that straight across. So it's not just that I have a monster who's you know fast or whatever, like Grendel was. It's that the seed, the rot, uh, is the same. I stole that as well. <laughs> um, anyway, and then uh, one under coverage was yeah. was a little more, a little more high fantasy, and stolen from Spencer's Fairy Queen heavily. Okay, and then one cat I ran into in Colombia. <laughs> so. <laughs> You know, good ingredients yeah, for uh, for some soul food. The character Duessa in uh in Spencer's Fairy Queen, okay. who appears beautiful, and then there's like she like flickers, which is interesting that Spencer was talking about it that way. So we're you know, pre-television, pre any concept of hologram, she's beautiful. She's absolutely compellingly beautiful. And then suddenly you see her as she really is, and she's this shriveled little eyeless monkey. Like she's yeah. clawed her own eyes out like her eye sockets are bloody and he yeah. gets really graphic and i do not <laughs> but you know the the idea that she feeds on the life of others is also duessa yeah. from fairy queen and very much uh, the seductress from proverbs as well yeah so allegorically typologically metaphorically however you want to look at it that's who namayani is she's this devourer she's consuming the life of others instead of being a life giver and she flickers Yeah. Um, she's blind and you sometimes see her when she's weak and she coughs or she sneezes or whatever. You see the real the Miani, and then she's right back to this beautiful striking.
0: Queen. Yeah. Yeah. All stolen. All stolen. I have to say. Yeah. That I think we could do a whole episode on stealing. <laughs> you yeah. Should. And that all works. That all works only in the context where we know what's the good side right. and the bad side. It doesn't, it doesn't. Cause. Much of what you're saying is about intention because of anybody can frame their own intentions in the best yeah. way. It's it's one of the worst habits and of humans. They do, and they
1: do. Yeah.
0: And I would say not only anybody can, everybody does. And so right. when you're
1: writing villains, it's important to yeah. write them, like seeing themselves as heroic. Yeah. Seeing themselves as messianic, seeing themselves as doing what was fair. So and what was line, just, yeah. Yeah, Edmund lying about Lucy is like, rationalized out of jealousy and envy, you know, he's, he's like tipping the scales back to fair. Right. And of course it's not, it never is, but, um, that, that's what he's doing.
0: That's such a good test in stories as, as a parent, you know, was I being just to my child when I snapped at them or was <laughs> I, you know, was it that impatience? Yeah. And, you know, and th- that moment of truth, the flicker, <laughs> yeah, the, flick, the flicker, the
1: flicker is a terrible thing when you see yourself And so, it it is actually really quite remarkable how easy it is for us to get caught up in our own little narrative moment. Like, no, you don't understand. I'm trying to drive to the grocery store. I have this righteous quest. I am on a righteous (laughs) quest. It's really important. It's super important (laughs) and it's super righteous and you just threw Ritz crackers over the seat. Right. You know, that is evil. And so, I am fully justified in behaving in an evil way. I am fully justified in switching teams, <laughs> and lashing out right. in anger and frustration. Um, not to say that Ritz Crackers should be thrown, but if they are, don't switch teams. Like, don't join yeah. the dark side because somebody threw a Ritz Cracker and do it feeling righteous. Yeah, where it's like they deserved it. I did them a favor, snapping yeah. on them. It's like, no, come on. But we all have that ability. All of us have the ability to rationalize with false righteousness. Our behavior yeah we do it all the time and villains are are this really heightened uh distilled version of it yeah and they exist and they exist in the real world you know all over the place I've got hilarious many hilarious tales uh I have a, a son who's involved in a um hysterical uh legal incident super petty you know like we're talking like a little municipal misdemeanor or somebody was upset at him and then you watch an officer be willing to falsify a report. You know, it's like, oh, wow. Over something that's nothing. Like, you, okay, could have ticketed him like 50 bucks or something. And instead, you're going to get on a high horse and be annoyed. And this was all, as a side note, this was all over mask enforcement. <laughs> <laughs> so, file this under my 18 year old son, didn't care for mask enforcement the same way the officer he was interacting with did. But any, anyway, the point is without getting too much into it and without having to you know explain to my lawyer why I'm talking about it on a podcast, the point is <laughs> it's like- It's villainy, a, that's why other, we're talking a, about it. A, a normal human, an officer who's a normal human, who I am sure I could get along with great, was presented with a choice and he was annoyed. And so he made a choice and he made a choice to cheat. And to like load up one side of the scales out of a desire for fairness. Him doing that is frustrating, but it's not any different than any of us do every day where we're, we get tempted, we get provoked. And so somebody is not understanding the you know, solemnity of our mission or whatever it is we're on, whatever quest we're yeah, on. Yeah. And so we then sin, we right. then uh, join the dark side in reaction and we rationalize it because you don't understand <laughs> they were out of accordance with my rule system at that moment right in violation yeah they were in violation i give them a citation uh, but ultimately it's because we get out of accordance with the objective standards so there are objective standards and as long as we are humbly serving them and pursuing them and we're constantly confessing and making things right and being sanctified that we're going in a particular direction, yeah. But at any moment, it's like driving. I've told a lot of people this is this is true of writing stories, reading stories, constructing stories, but also just living one with your life. If you're driving from Seattle to Miami, you could go off the road any second. That entire drive, like, and it's a long drive. It's a long drive, and every second of that drive, you could go sailing off the road. And it's the same way with life, and the same way with storytelling. You could do a great job for a while, but any given second, you could ruin everything. And every character and every story is that way. Uh, and we're that way. So we like to say, and actually in conversation with ourselves and with family members, if we snap, what we like to do is point out how um, how long we didn't do it. So yeah. we like to say all day, I've been patient. <laughs> And then the six. I was patient. Ritz cracker. Came. Yes, I was. I was patient for six and a half hours, and then I wasn't.
0: <laughs> and uh, I've talked I'm to laughing about it. because it's true. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
1: and so we think that that somehow makes it better. <laughs> it's you know it's it is it is funny because we we know better than that. You know we absolutely do. If you said if you stood outside a play glass window with a rock and you didn't throw the rock through it for six hours, and then you finally gave in and threw the rock through the playglass glass window, and the store owner came running out, and you're like, you don't understand how long I stood here before I did that. Please give me bonus credit. I only threw the rock through the window for about five seconds. I didn't throw the rock through for many hours. <laughs> and that's, you know, that's how we are. It's when you drive the, the car off the road. And it is how we all become villains. That moment is how any one of us Veers off the road and we can start on the road to villainy. So
0: how do we avoid the urge to turn the wheel? <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> Perspective, accountability, quick correction.
1: I mean, that's that's it. And that's how you write a protagonist. Because a pro- conscience. Yeah. Yeah. yeah too. So any good protagonist is constantly under that pressure as well, just like we are in our lives. They're capable of turning the wheel and going off the road any any second, ruining it everything at any at any yeah. second and then sometimes they'll start to you'll hit the rumble strip you'll be on the gravel yeah and then you'll have you know course correction edmund got you know almost all the way off the bridge <laughs> into the river and then he gets pulled back and there's atonement and sacrifice and redemption so yeah it functions own, yeah a bit like a, ho- a holy spirit i guess keeping, yeah, keeping you absolutely. on that road yeah yep and so in our own lives perspective 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 being able to see the whole highway, the whole route, where you're headed uh, the whole time. Miami. Miami. My- <laughs> Although that might be, I don't know. I hear it's nice, but is that really the road to heaven? <laughs> that's I,
0: so I have much. questions
1: as well. Especially. Yeah. It's <laughs> like, okay, let's just say the road to somewhere else. That's totally heavenly. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, uh, anyway. And it's, it's, so any villain in any story should be something, somebody, some person with motivations that people can relate to and understand, but that just have gone wrong. Every villain should be a bit of a cautionary tale, not something totally unrelatable and impossible to comprehend. But a you know a cautionary tale. If you start with something high fantasy, high high fantasy, so more like Namiyani in the Covered Trilogy or Sauron. Like even there, there's a backstory for Sauron and the corruption of power, right? But we don't need all his motivations. He's this force. The villains we deal with are way more human. We deal with Boromir's temptation. We deal with the Ring as really a, a symbol of and a manipulator of uh, the depravity of man. You know, so it corrupts. It destroys. We see Denethor fail, like we see him drive off the road. Uh, we see Boromir drive off the road, and even the orcs are very yeah. Personable villains. Yep, exactly. So when you've got uh, the Hobbits getting lugged off to Isengard, yeah. and you listen to these little rivalries in between the different yeah, the, groups of
0: Orcs, and the Urukhai freaking out, yeah, and they're the, willing
1: to murder each other because they just out of tribal hatred. Yeah, it's great, and it shows a lot of wisdom in Tolkien in writing the Orcs that way. They weren't just snotty monsters. Yeah, right. there was there was a humanity to them that we can relate to, even in their snotty monsterness.
0: Yeah. I think the technical term is snotty monstrosity. <laughs> I think I think that's the takeaway from this. Avoid snotty monstrosity. Yes. Every second of your
1: life, all the way to Miami. <laughs> all the all the way to Miami. Every time you start feeling the it, better Miami. Yeah, the better one, the one that Miami's a placeholder for <laughs> yeah. in this in this illustration. Every step of the way, it's like we can all veer into villainy. I don't like villains where they can say you don't understand I was good for six hours or you don't understand so-and-so hurt my feelings. And
0: then the reader's meant to be like, Oh, that explains it. Oh yeah. Oh, he's a bully. Cause he's bullied. Oh, uh, he got thrown out of heaven. Cause he, God didn't, God made Jesus. Yes. <laughs> hey, G- hurt his feelings. I mean, like, his feelings. Lucifer he wanted to, was, he yeah. wanted to reign in hell rather than serve in heaven. Yeah. Poor guy. And the end, which is a very human, you know,
1: very understandable, I should say, as opposed to human, a very understandable emotion and desire. So yeah. Satan. I mean, he had it pretty sweet, and then he just got demoted for no good reason, out of nowhere, uh, in Paradise Lost. And so we see him raging on the moon.
0: <laughs> yeah, which just one of the great glaring, saints. glaring at Earth. <laughs> <laughs> yes, just
1: angry. So yeah, as far as as far as the takeaways go, and we didn't really get here, but we should tie this off because we've been going for a while now. Yeah, when you are reading your kids' stories, or you're letting your kids read stories. You don't want them to be ingesting things that tell them, on the one hand, that there is no such thing as objective good, objective evil. There are sides, but you also want them to be reading things that make them understand the slipperiness of the slope in between those two sides. You know, how easy, how we are all capable of feeding and fueling darkness in our hearts and of joining the like the so-called dark side uh, without the weird worldview of Star Wars. We're all capable of gardening evil in our hearts, you know, growing weeds instead of plants. They're all plants, I guess, but you know, fruits and veg, (laughs) (laughs) Um, the occasional herb. (laughs) So Entries. Yeah. (laughs) yeah. But basically we're all capable of that. So there are plenty of books where you see that slide. You can understand Edmund in the Narnia Chronicles is an example. There's a lot of that, and you see that also in if you're a little older or your kids are a little older in the Space Trilogy. There's a lot of sophistication in how he handles the movement of characters uh, between good and evil. And that is very possible, and it's possible both directions. It's much easier on the one hand going from the good side to the dark side until you fully comprehend grace and the good news and you realize it's actually really easy to go the other direction too. You just need repentance and forgiveness. It's there's not yeah, his yoke is easy. Yeah. So understand that it's not, you know, two Lego bins where you have the evil ones and the good ones, but neither is it one Lego bin where there's just different misunderstood pieces. Yeah. And that's uh you want you want to feed that in your kids. You want to get it right. Um, you want them to understand their own capacity for villainy and to desire to defeat it every day, you know, to continue to defeat
0: it. That's great. I I uh, want to go apply it to all the stories we've talked about, but we don't have time. I think no, they'll have don't. to have to do it and let us I mean, know how it went. I mean, we technically
1: do, but we want to sleep.
0: Right. Cuz it's late. <laughs> I guess we all have do have that time. I think people need to do it for us and let yes. us know if it works. Yes. Discuss it amongst yourselves. <laughs> yeah. So it is
1: I mean, I think that villains make a story, make a breaker story and they also can be really powerful and helpful. You know, with young imaginations. And often more so than what you see in in some of the good characters, but go carefully. Yeah, you know, don't just you don't want just placeholders of monsters and that's it. But neither do you want relativism. So Ursula Le Guin, she's I would give her like a thirteen percent on that. Yeah, and I don't mean to be so dismissive of
0: one of the greats, but I'm going to anyway. <laughs> yeah, I, I I think that's that's this place, the forty whatever ninth minute. Of our, of our podcast it was a good time for this uh ambrose Bierce had a great definition of antagonist as the miserable scoundrel who won't let us <laughs> and yes. uh
1: i like that they just just won't let us i actually i referred to movie filtering earlier and i watched die hard today with my children because it's the christmas season yeah and to nip the discussion in the bud, yes, it's a Christmas movie. Not only is it a Christmas movie, it's one of the best if it's filtered. <laughs> um, there's some very quiet spots <laughs> and some weird skips, but my kids track it. And one of the things that's so fantastic about the film is the villainy, the nature of the villainy. And Snape, Snape, yeah, is, Snape is there. Yeah, the Alan Rigman there, but also on the sides, the frustration between the cop and his. The, you know, the commissioner who shows up, the antagonism between our hero in the skyscraper and the, uh, the police force outside who just won't understand and tries to boss him around. And then the FBI guys who show up and are bossing them around. And there's just tension upon tension upon tension of people making bad choices and being petty when there's something really big going on and they're unable to forget their pettiness and they are constantly just trying to leverage power and control over each other. Uh, which is great. And then inside the building, you have one of the the geniuses of of that particular writer is putting the objection of the viewer in the, into the mouth of a character. When a character mm. speaks the objection of the viewer, it diffuses it pretty rapidly. So repeatedly, Alan Rickman's character, Hans Gruber, is rebuked that this is all about theft. <laughs> like, what? Like, you're just stealing? Like, all of this, this huge, complicated plot it's only theft. You're just doing this for money. Like you don't have any higher like reason. You're not a terrorist. Why aren't you a political terrorist? It's just about money. And that's it. He, he's just that petty. He's highly sophisticated, highly trained, bloodthirsty, selfish. Just selfishness. And yeah. that's it. So, yeah. and then on the outside, lots and lots of jealousy, envy, sidelong glances and rivalries between different law enforcement but anyway, it's it plays out really, really well. Good and I was thinking about it. Yeah. I was thinking about it in terms of our conversation that we were due to have. It's like, man, the villainy here just kind of unfolds. There's all these different places where it rears its head, and all of it is caricatured humanity. I mean, it's inflated and exaggerated in different ways, but also kind of not. People are actually that way. Yeah. So it's funny, it's compelling, it makes us laugh at ourselves and at humans. Yeah. While also wanting to be that tough that we we too could jump off a skyscraper with a fire hose around our waist and bloody feet. But anyway, Die Hard's a great place to end this discussion. So yeah, feed your kids good stuff, but feed your kids good stuff with the right kind of darkness. Yeah, the right villains. Yep, the right villains. And uh, I wouldn't call them the chocolate chips, but maybe the raisins. <laughs> <laughs> A crazen if you get an And that's the line. real place we're gonna end. Villains, the raisins and the cookies of your story.
0: Thanks for listening to this week's edition of the Stories Are Soul Food Podcast. Don't forget that when you download and subscribe to the Canon app, you can find all sorts of books from the Cannonball line, like Douglas Wilson's Andrew and the Fire Drake, The Babylon Bee's Ethan Nicole's Brave Ollie Possum strays by remy wilkins the winter king by christine cohen and many more so go download the canon app and fill up your kids audio library with good books